Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two degenerates who may or may not wash their eye makeup off from the night before come together and tell each other the history stories that we've been compulsively reading about and hope that the other one uh, doesn't know so much about it. I'm Teresa. I'm Angie, and I need you to know that I considered purchasing clear mascara the other day just for the conditioning effect, but knew I wouldn't wash it off. This eyeliner is last night's. Well, it looks fantastic. Doesn't it? Um, it's because I great. strategically washed the rest of it off oh, this morning okay. when I woke up and looked like a mascara panda. And I thought, no, I'm I'm not going to represent myself like that today. Thanks. I mean, live your best life. Is it my best? I I don't think it is. I think it's up there with Teresa. You are 39 years old. You should have enough ducks together. They should be somewhat, I mean, not in a row, but at least herded in a tight grouping. Do you think I'm, listen, I'm just living for being in the same pond. As the rest like, of your, the problem is yeah. I've got chickens as well as ducks. And so they're not all, you know, <laughs> they're not all waterborne fowl. What I love is that you have been watching my TikToks that are purely based loosely off of what happened in history today and then saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I wonder, I wonder if this relates to the story Teresa studying and they're apples to oranges. Okay. Yeah. But, but because sometimes I see like two or three at a time. And I'm like, crap, these are so different. Which one is she trying to send me as a hint? I knowing no that, hints. Yeah, knowing that you give me no hints, but like that doesn't stop my brain from being like, one of these has a clue in it. I mean, the anyway, clue is... Anyway, ready for my close-up. The clue is literally on the screen that I'm looking at are the notes for the, the video and then the, the notes for the recording that we're doing today. That's the clue. You need to be able to like zoom in, pause the screen, Your eyes. read my eyeballs and like read backwards to see what is on the other screen. I can do that, but I'm going to need you to start wearing glasses. It reflects a little better. Look, okay. I mean, my my irises are as dark as my pupils, which are as dark as my soul. I have done all that I can at this point. They are practically obsidian orbs. Y'all, she's just selling herself right now, sounding so good with those obsidian orbs. What have you been reading lately, Teresa? What haven't I? That's the problem. <laughs> like, honestly, I just got the one, two, three, four, five, sixth book in the Throne of Glass series. Nice. And uh, they have gone way too quickly. Like, it's not, These are things. it's not okay that I can read a couple hundred pages in a day. It's not okay. I mean, uh, yeah, I I enjoy it, but then I'm very sad at the end because I read the whole series in a week. Yeah, I, and I'm like looking at Hubs going, it's this this book, the pages are flying by. Like, you need to slow it down. Like, it's his fault that I am compulsively reading. <laughs> if I can make something his fault, as in my husband's fault, not your husband's fault, I will do it. But then now that I'm saying that, if I could also make it your husband's fault, I will too. <laughs> I mean, make it my husband's fault because then yours doesn't get any of the flack, you know? 
mm, he's going to get flack one way or the other, so I might right. as well just keep on keeping on, you know? So, uh, who... Go ahead, go you're going to ask who's going to go first. Yeah, I was. I want to hear your story. I mean, I could go first. Okay. I'm, All right. I'm, I want to hear your story. So, what do you know of American-based pirates? What do I know of? Pre-Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> uh, I know, I'm going to say not much. I, like, I know some things, but not enough to, like, sit here and tell you, oh, so-and-so was born in this decade and did this. Yeah, like, okay. I might recognize a name, but off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you not a lot. All right. Have you ever heard of the Pirates of Baratarian Bay? Or Barataria Bay? Not off the top of my head. Oh, buckle up okay um this this was a, a happy little side quest that i went on and it quickly became this is its own full story oh i love side quests it's like so, snoop dog living his best life you know i that's really what i aspire to be i want to be the best Teresa i can be but i want to get further and for farther enough down my own storyline that i can side quest it out like snoop uh, same he is, yeah, same. Oh, you know what I should do? I should back up a second and say we did get an email from a listener. We did? Hello, listener. I mean, we've gotten a couple, but this one says, I'm listening to the latest episode, episode 36, and I had to stop because I'm laughing. I scream laughed so hard. <laughs> you were giving your references, and I said, this sounds dry. <laughs> You respond, oh, trust me, it's not. It's actually quite wet. His response, skull, side laughing, <laughs> side laughing, side laughing. I'm so proud of myself. It's actually quite wet, yeah. You know, I, I have to tell you that I am the queen of references that I didn't mean to make. Until after I've made them. <laughs> I mean, but that said, I feel like you should just know. You should know that you are loved. Your humor is met. It is understood and appreciated. And appreciated, not unappreciated. Don't listen to the words <laughs> I mean, not the words I say. I got you. Like, right. do it as I say, not as I said. Look, I'm your mother. <laughs> I will not I be did held my to best. your standards. You know what? I, I got to go to the store, get a cigarette. But, yeah, cigarettes. I'll be, I'll be right back. You, you do. I did boat. my best. I did my best. Right. Okay. So my sources. HeritageHistory.com. The Pirates of Barataria Bay. The Historic New Orleans Collection. Battle of New Orleans Timeline. Americans Hauntings Podcast. Battle or New Orleans Under the Black Flag and the pirate John Lafitte. And FamousPirates.com have a post about him as well. Okay, first of all, that's not a real website. You just made that up. Do they also <laughs> sell amazing hats and themed mugs? Maybe. Of course. Actually, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I didn't get that far into the website. I was purely there for the research. Um, all right, okay. I'll let it fly. Like I was standing in the bathroom wall reading Reddit posts that one time. You were standing in the bathroom wall. <laughs> At the bathroom I wall. I mean, I have a lot of additional questions. 
Oh my God. Just think the Manhattan Project. Have you, have no, you ever paused no. mid-demo day and think, I have just got to read something <laughs> real quick. Okay. Anyhow, so. Not the Manhattan Project. I'm sorry. I said the wrong thing. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. We're, we're just, we are the queen of these side quests. We just need to get far, far enough down for this story <laughs> about pirates to make sense. Okay. So come with me 60 miles south of New Orleans. Okay. We're in Barataria Bay. The golden age of pirates has already closed out. Nassau and the Carib- the Caribbean pirates, they've they're already they're already gone. They've been gone for a while. And we are now on the swampy shores of Louisiana. Okay. Okay. I'm picturing Louis- it. Louisiana is very backwater. I mean, you know this because we covered this in episode 14. Um, the history was it was French, and then it was Spanish, and then it went back to French. And then it joined uh, the U.S. under President Jefferson. Um, And you already know that, you know, when you covered the Casket Girls, and that was in 1728, I'm pulling all these details out for you, um, that that was the French's attempts to get virtuous women to this area so they could marry the local men. Now we're going to fast forward to the early 1800s. Okay. Okay. So we already have had government-sanctioned privateers, captains who were allowed to attack other vessels if their country was at war with that other, the country the flag was flying, or the ship was flying. Right, right, okay. And under these maritime laws, captains could keep both the ship and the cargo as long as he brought everything to the port of the country he claimed allegiance to and presented it to the Admiralty Court. And if he had that loot that was logged at the customs house, he could sell it however he wanted. I just have a question. Yeah. How how often did they actually turn in the loot? I mean, we're going to get into that. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to offer that maybe people you pay to kill and steal are perhaps not always going to be the most upstanding of individuals. In fact, yeah. just, just maybe. Maybe the moral compass is a bit askew. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so most privateers, they end up flying the flag of Cartagena, which is a port in Colombia. And these privateers were only supposed to target the Spanish ships because Colombia was at war with Spain. But if you, you know, you scuttle the ship, you kill everyone, no one can really rat you out. Yeah, they did. And so you really just kind of attack anything you see. And then... What do you have to win? Like, you know, now you have to just get your loot back to Cartagena and just be like, yeah, this is this is for Spanish <laughs> enough. Adjacent. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so that's that's really what happens. OK, so once the U.S. takes over New Orleans, we're seeing a lot of pirates come to New Orleans instead of going all the way to Columbia and then wade through those admiralty hearings. And then they don't necessarily take those ill-gotten goods and declare them at the customs house. So they just smuggle them to shore instead. So we have a lot of these swamps that were ready-made by by nature as this lurking place for smugglers and pirates. And so if you know all of the fun little routes, you're able to really build up a very lucrative trade. So standard pirating as we understand it would occur and then the clue the good crews would bring their goods to the, the bay of bartaria and then they would 
take their small boats, row it all to shore, and then get it to these lesser pirate lords who would pay him for the goods and smuggle it out. I, I just made up the term pirate lords. It is literally in none of the sources. So do not quote me or come for me on that. Um, okay. This makes... So for years, the pirates of Bartari Bay, they're, they're defying the authorities and it makes the gulf and the scene of their exploits just prime and ready for all this. So fast forward, we're going to introduce our two daring Frenchmen. We've got Pierre and John Lafitte. And they come from the Bordeaux area uh, after 1800 and settle in New Orleans. Now, John Lafitte, if you try to look up information about him, you're going to see about a dozen different places around the Bordeaux area that he was born, a couple of different dates of birth. So it's just like a lot of loose facts about him for the early years. Uh, they're both highly educated men. They'd seen much of the world. They spoke several languages fluently. Uh, Pierre, he's served in the French army and he's become a skilled fencing master. Jean was the charming one and he set up a blacksmith shop and had to be clear to... they were both charming just oh, they, saying yeah no they yeah this <laughs> this is like having two gorgeous daughters and then saying this one's the pretty one they're both gorgeous right it's just the one you're trying to marry yeah. off is the pretty one <laughs> okay so Jean has his own blacksmith shop. He has slaves doing the work there. And so this seems like it's starting to be like they're, they're very above board. We're going to play it right to, to, to do things. Um, Pierre sets up his own shop on Royal Street. And it's at these establishments that they start to really launder the smuggled goods. And I'm Longer. saying laundered because, I mean, I really, it's like, I feel like that's really what's happening, but literally none of the other sources said that. It just feels like a good word. Um, okay. Their occupation outright changes in 1808, and that's when Congress forbades importing more slaves. Um, Jefferson, then he passes the Bargo Act, which forbid trade with foreign countries. And here's where any, like you have like the best opportunity. If you've got all this stuff that you can't import, and you've got your hands on these fine carpets and curtains and whatever you've got, everybody's going to want it. But then if you also look at the slaves, slavers were used to paying 800 bucks a person. And with this embargo in place, the cost soars to $1,000 a piece. Now, you also have to think that these people were bought for 20 bucks a person on the African coast or 300 in Cuba. Cool. So that's quite the markup. Yeah. It's it's all disgusting, but I am mentioning the absolute prices because it just shows how, you yeah. know, who gets what. So they're starting to smuggle people and goods through Barataria Bay and really get this going. Um, while all this is happening, there was a slave ship that had been seized by pirates and is headed right towards the Grand Tier in Bartaria Bay, which is a two-day boat ride away from New Orleans. And so this is just the perfect storm. Jean Lafitte, he ends up getting a wild hair and he ventures all the way down to the bay and he starts meeting with these pirates. He ends up, over a course of a two-week period, convincing everyone. Mind you, he hasn't been a pirate before. He's just running a blacksmith shop. 
that he should be their appointed leader. As you do. And I did say he was the charming one. And here's where he proves it because they appoint him as leader and he sets it all up. You know, and he's like, here's how we're going to smuggle the goods into New Orleans. Here's how we're going to set up, you know, trade with the other businesses in the city. Here's how we're going to get everybody a cut. And it just ends up really being an incredible thing for him. So all this is happening. And as they're selling the stuff in the city, it they're selling it kind of like they're honest people, you know, because they just so happen to already have points of establishment where these things could be sold. They didn't just pop up overnight. Right. So it looks like a legitimate thing. So not long after this, the British break up, you know, the rest of the pirate hordes in the West Indies and everyone just continued like, to break out, like kind of like rats and they just flee. And so they continue to find these various haunts all around. The British? The yeah, the British. Okay. And so we see an influx of pirates hitting the coast of Florida and all throughout Mexico. Like, so th- these are the things. And this is just so happening to hyper-focus on New Orleans and the, New- the, the Louisiana area. Okay, so within a year of running the pirate hordes, John Lafitte has a thousand men and 50 ships flying the Cartagenian flag. <laughs> I like um, it. He's built homes for his, I, I called them employees, but, you know, for the pirates and their women. Does he, does he offer health care? I'm, I'm sure. Because piracy. I, you, you feel, I feel like he should. Um, and I also don't hear anything about a 401k contribution or employer <laughs> match, but <laughs> he does build gambling houses and cafes, brothels, and then even storehouses for the, the, the illicit goods. Okay. On another island, just close by, they have a temple or a named temple. Um, they have auctions where they sell their plunder. Purchasers end up smuggling it up the bayous and then into the night into New Orleans where there's no way to show where it came from. Although everybody is pretty suspicious that this stuff is ill-gotten. You know, like all the instructions are in Spanish. I'm pretty sure this this wasn't American <laughs> made. It is not stamped. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. hmm. By 1813, most stores in New Orleans were at least partially supplied by Lafitte. Oh, so he's a pirate king now. Oh, my gosh. Um, They talk about how he would entertain at his lavish stone and brick house in Grand Terre and how he had the finest of carpets, the finest of curtains, the finest. And it's all ill-gotten goods. Right. And everyone was super impressed with this, basically, pirate king. Um, So it's not until 1814, during the height of the war with England, because now we're going to the the War of 1812. Okay. Okay. Now, the easygoing life of the Creoles in New Orleans, they've, they've been getting a little indignant at the defiance that the Lafitte's have against the law. Because again, like, most of the businesses have some some goods from Lafitte, but they're they're kind of like, okay, this is a bit, he's kind of a bit of an a-hole, you know, charming <laughs> as he is. So they they decide it's high time for the Buccaneers to to stop. Um, and what really kind of tips it that the things is the these two Buccaneers, they end up firing on some revenue officers. Oh, that'll do it. 
that kind of, it's kind of a black eye, not a feather in the cap. So with this, Pierre Lafitte is seized in the streets of New Orleans, along with one of his captains named Dominique Yan, and they are locked up in a jail. This pisses off Jean. Um, it's followed up with Governor Claiborne offering $500 for the rest of John Lafitte. John Lafitte, he gets pretty, pretty up in his heels over this. $500 for the rest of him? For the arrest. Oh, no. no, Hold on. I think you missed something. They got only his hand and they figured (laughs) we need the rest of the pirate because we're pretty sure we don't have enough to stop this. I knew I heard you wrong, but I was like, wait, maybe I didn't. I got to ask. I mean, I'm going to record, <laughs> listen to this tomorrow and go, oh, that was pretty bad. Okay. So Governor <laughs> Claiborne, he offers $500 for the arrest of John Lafitte. He already has brother one. He wants brother two. Um, he wants as, the whole set. Yeah, yeah. He wants the matching pair. Um, John yeah. Lafitte, he's a little insolent about this idea. So he offers $5,000 for the head of the governor. So it 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 escalated a little bit. Yeah. Um, Now, some reports do say it was only fifteen hundred, but I like the five hundred to five thousand. So that's what I went with. (laughs) Live your dream. I mean, honestly, both numbers are astronomical. It's either three times or ten times. Just take your pick. I mean, (laughs) it's incredible either way. Um, So this defiance pushes Claiborne to some decisive action and he calls out a militia and tasks them to go to Barataria with the orders to capture and destroy the settlement of Buccaneers, seize all of the pirates they can get their hands on and just shut it down. Small problem. The governor doesn't really understand the full ramifications and connivery of these pirates. Um, the pirates had spies and scouts that kept them fully informed of all the movements of the troops coming towards them. And the citizen soldiers trudged all the way to Barataria and they didn't see a single person the entire time they were walking. As they're getting close, they hear the boatswain's whistle. And at that point, from about a dozen secret passages, armed men swarmed them. And in a few minutes had surrounded them and had them completely overwhelmed. So resistance is hopeless. And then they surrender and the grim pirates stood ready to slaughter them all. If anybody moved so much as a muscle and Lafitte stepping forward invites them join my men. I'm going to promise you an easy life with excellent pay. And a 401k. We're working on it. We're we're working on a union. Um, we, we're, we're getting it covered. We, you know, we want to promise your voice being heard. But their captain, he sturdily refuses. And this Loser. whole thing is such a scene from a movie. Because Lafitte says, very well, with disdainful generosity. You can go. <laughs> you can stay as you please. Yonder's the road you came by. You're free to go back. But you are wise if you will, in your future, keep out of the reach of the jolly rovers of the Gulf. Uh-huh. 
Now, I mean, these may or may not be his exact words, but either way, with the captain and his men set free, they trudge right on back with nothing in hand. <laughs> and it's Except their right, hats. That's about it. But it's after that that the War of 1812 kicks off. And that's basically mostly in the north, you know, and it it, it starts making its way south. And then a British fleet appears in the Gulf in the early oh, autumn no. of 1814. And they make an attack on Mobile, Alabama. And then in September, a war vessel and his fleet appear off Bartaria Bay. And they fire at one of the pirate craft and they drop an anchor about six miles out. And then soon a small boat wearing a white flag is put off, uh, put off its side. And then they row shoreward and it's met by a vessel that had put off from Grand Terre. And the British officer says, I'm Captain Locklear. I'm here to see Captain Lafitte. I am he, says the voice back. Well, then this is for you. And Captain Lockyer handed Lafitte a bulky package. And Lafitte, he just decides to he's going to take complete control of the situation. Just come ashore while I examine this and I'll offer you humble entertainment, you know, such as we poor mariners can afford. Hmm. And so Ever Lafitte, the gentleman. Exactly. Lafitte gets I think him I love him. You're going to love him even more. <laughs> he gets him all the way he welcomes the visitors he opens the package that's brought to him and it contains a couple of documents um the purpose is to threaten him with utter destruction if he continues to prey on the ships of england and spain um he then offers lafitte the rank of captain in the british navy of thirty thousand in gold I mean, that's in 1808 money yeah, I'm uh I'm sure that translates to two million in today. Ding money. ding ding, you're playing right. Um <laughs> and they also offer Lafitte protection if he would aid the British in the upcoming attack in New Orleans. So he the the British just like spill their hand. And they're yeah, like, they you did. know. We're getting ready to go visit your buddies 60 miles up north. We hear tell that you don't quite like the government, that perhaps maybe your younger brother has been arrested by the governor. Maybe, maybe we could be friends, the enemy of my enemy. And all that. So Lafitte reads the letters and he says, you know, I'd like some time to really think about all of this before I come up with an answer. Um, I'm, I'm going to go have a think and once he's gone, his men rush in, seize the captain and his men, and lock them up as prisoners. As they're you held, do. They're held captive all night. And of course, they're panicked because it's not like pirates are known for being hospitable hosts to their prisoners. <laughs> Perhaps they just haven't met French pirates yet. I would assume that they have the same background, <laughs> but... Lafitte appears in the morning with profuse apologies, declaring loudly that his men acted without his knowledge or consent, and then leads them back to their boat. I firmly believe 100% Lafitte called for them to be arrested. For sure. No doubt. But either way, it's a hell of a flex. Mm -hmm. So Locklear finds himself on, on his boat again, 
despite the pirate's excuses. And two hours later, Lafitte sent him word that he's going to accept the offer, but he needs to have a couple of weeks to get his affairs in order. And so with this answer, the boat pulls up anchor, sails away. Now, what do you think of Lafitte so far? Where do you think uh, the story is going? I think he can easily play both sides of the table if he wants to. It's it's as if you've already seen my page because Lafitte <laughs> does just that. He's no plans on joining the British. Um, yeah. The Sophia, the British ship, has barely left when he sends papers to New Orleans asking, hey, if you release my brother and forgive us of our sins, you know, you pardon us of these crimes. I'd love to join you. Boy, by the way, I've got a couple more, you know, tentilating facts about this upcoming invasion. <laughs> um, Lafitte tells Governor Claiborne that he knows that, you know, you, you should trust me. My services are needed at war with the war against the British. I'm not a pirate. He refers to his base libel. That his ships are legitimate privateers and they're all bearing the mark of from Venezuela. Like he's obviously super nervous about the idea of, you know, switching his allegiance to the Americans. And he's trust for good reason. Because as this is going out, Governor Claiborne uh, orders another raid. As you do. Only it's this time with the actual Navy. Oh, no. And it consisted of three barges of troops under the command of Commander Patterson. And they're joined by the Balize and six gunboats and a schooner. And they proceed against the stronghold. Ooh. And so December 16th, the small fleet comes within sight of Grand Terre. They drop a line of battle. They start into the entrance of the bay. And within the pirate fleet is only 10 vessels in all in line to receive him. And it, it, it ends up being a very vicious attack. And the men swarm into the boats, into the wake of the other vessels, and are quickly overcoming this thing. So the pirates quickly lose. Some reports call the pirates cowards, Ugh. which I feel is an underused insult. I will, I will always, <laughs> you know, quietly make eye contact with someone and just say, you coward. I love receiving text messages from you like that. Coward. I can hear you saying them. I mean, <laughs> it cuts deeper than most swear words because it's so underused. Truly it is. Uh, can I take this opportunity to tell you that I imagine the governor looks like Colonel Sanders? I will accept nothing less and I will not look up what he looked like. There you go. <laughs> okay. So in a very short time, we've got two of the pirate ships burning. Oh, a third no. of them, a third's run aground and the others are captured. So many of the pirates have fled. About 80 are taken. The battle's over and... All of the buildings are burned to the ground on Grand Terre and Grand Isle. Uh, so it's just broken up. It's done. The fleet, the American fleet, has sailed back for New Orleans, bringing with them the captured craft and the prisoners they've taken. Mm. Which is, you know, kind of a bummer, but they didn't get John Lafayette or John Lafitte. I call him Lafayette. That's not, the, that's not it. Not it not, at all. Not that, not that Frenchman. No, not that Frenchman. <laughs> um, okay, so all this is happening. Uh, General Jackson, Andrew Jackson, 
just for those playing at home, um, they end up recognizing that the British are about to make an assault mm. in the South. So Andrew Jackson hightails it to New Orleans as quick as he can get there. And he is calling on men from all corners of Louisiana, recognizing that they are going to be outgunned, outmanned. This is <laughs> going to go down like a fart in church. This was going to be awful. Lafitte, John Lafitte, he flees to New Orleans and he renews his offer to help. He meets with Andrew Jackson in all places, an absinthe bar. That checks. Tells him that he's got a body of trained artillery, artillery men under his command that are tried and capable men that would like to take a hand in the defense of the city. And Andrew Jackson had basically been talking shit about the Lafitte's and referred to them as, quote, hellish banditi. <laughs> but now, like, maybe meeting him, maybe being an absence in an absent health, maybe, you know, a little column A, a little column B. He, now he's like, I'd love to accept your aid. Sounds great. Let's do it. Pretty much. Um, he starts, pull, uh, like, alluding to them as these gentlemen. So we went from hellish banditi to would you help these gentlemen out? And I mean, he, yeah. He then gives them control, or I say them, but really Jean, Jean, John, Jean, Jean. Uh, charge of the seize guns and several of the forts and like really allows him to take strategic control. Which is great because the guns are skillfully handled and served. The Baratarians fighting are super brave, but it's a bunch of thieves and pirates being brought in to defend New Orleans. I mean, when you think about the city, that checks. Right. And they <laughs> love this city, right? They have been, this has been their heart blood for the longest time. And they end up contributing greatly to the defeat of the British in the Battle of New Orleans. That a boy. Now, the battle ends, the British go home with their head in their hands. Ooh. And I mean, I was thinking more like in shame, not like physically <laughs> carrying it in haunted horseman kind of fashion. That's um, how I'm seeing it. So don't ruin it for me. Okay. All right. Thank you. And after the battle, Jackson commends them warmly for their conduct and praises the Lafitte's for their courage and fidelity, which is not something you ever hear ascribed to two pirates. <laughs> I and love then them. On February 6th, 1815, all the pirates who fought received a pardon for their crimes from President Madison. Which is they go. pretty cool. And then many believe that John Lafitte, he was going to go straight. That he was going to join the straight and narrow, not necessarily join a church, but really kind of give up his plundering ways. But it's at the victory ball that Lafitte approaches a group that includes Governor Claiborne and Andrew Jackson. And Claiborne and Jackson, they warmly welcome him, but the rest of the members of that group shun him. Ugh. And one account records that when the governor introduces Lafitte to a general, the general hesitates before shaking Lafitte's hand. That was his grave mistake. And so Lafitte, able to read social cues, introduces himself as, quote, Lafitte the pirate. That a boy. Because he's like, you know what? I I am what I am. Like, 
I, I kind of wanted to go down the straight and narrow, but not hanging out with you guys. Turns out you guys are no fun. Yeah. So Lafitte goes back to his old trade for the next three years. Him and his brother smash and rob Rome, or Spanish vessels. And they're smuggling goods to New Orleans because that's that's what you do. And then from New Orleans, he makes his way to Texas and to the Providence of Mexico, where that was then a Providence of Mexico. Or province? Providence. Province. Province. I haven't even, I haven't even been drinking. Dang. And then soon we we hear him, you know, going back to his buccaneering work. And it's about this time he becomes, he sets up this place called Galvez Town, which is now oh. Galveston. And he tries to basically recreate his pirate paradise that he had in Grand Tier. Um, it, it just doesn't quite do, it doesn't grow the same way. Like he had, it went great in Grand Tier, but it doesn't take off in Galvez Town. And so he, you know, then tries to command a fleet that was a thin veiled guise of Colombian privateers. But he decides basically that it's just not working. And he decides to become an open pirate. And as late as 1822 was the terror of the Gulf, just attacking anything he can get his hands on. Uh, <laughs> it was a, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's an open pirate now. I'm just thinking, was he a closeted pirate before? <laughs> Stop it. He's just <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so he he goes back into it, and then you know, so we get we get reports of of him doing this up until eighteen twenty two, and it's after that it, he just kind of vanished from view, and so we don't know if he died while flying the Jolly Roger or if he ended his life quietly on land. And there's a lot of unsubstantiated reports of him changing his name and living in like a dozen different places and dying a dozen different ways, including one he lived out his life in Illinois. That's weird. It Not seem like, doing that. Huh? Um, <laughs> but I, I do have some pictures I've cobbled together from the interwebs. Would you like to see? Yes. Can you see that? Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's exactly what I imagined he looked like. Mm-hmm. So will you describe for the those playing at home? Okay, think um I'm trying to think of who he if Matthew McConaughey had a handlebar mustache and slightly darker curly hair wearing the 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 uniform we're so actually used to seeing a Texan wear, except for it's got anchors on the lapel. Mm. It's got the hat, yeah. the uh the rolled up like ranger hat. And his sword at his side. What is in his hand? Is that a looking glass? I think so. Like a little oh, little or maybe it's glass, a pipe. A telescope. It's one of the two. It's either a pipe or a spyglass. I can't quite tell. Here's oh, the he other looks... one. <laughs> he looks like a pilgrim in that one. Like a pissed <laughs> off pilgrim. Yeah. His plume in his hat, though, is outrageously long and i'm here for it. he's wearing like a a velvet red coat with a black i think a black cloak yep got a I'd white agree. collar on and very some very ruddy red cheeks as if he's just been hitting the rum he procures but you know like this this oil painting looks like he and the painter did not get along and the painter did not want to show his charming side Absolutely. It does not look like Matthew McConaughey at all in that painting. No, no. This, <laughs> this looks like some pissed off member of the nobility 
who was the third son set to inherit nothing and really about to just head to a brothel. Yeah, he's because he's got his angry wife at home. Yeah. Yeah, poor guy. Hmm. Bring back Matt McConaughey back. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, that one's the good one. Um, mm-hmm. But that is the story of the Baratarian Pirates. I love that for me. Right? That was a delightful story. New I mean, Pirates. Like, who'd have thought? I love weird battles and pirates these are things i'm learning about myself you know it's it's always that moment when you look at your husband and say i have a favorite battle do you have a favorite battle um can i just start my story by telling you that you said a handful of things in your story that directly related to my story but have nothing to do with it at the same time there are no pirates in my story none at all None. Okay. Because I immediately panicked about my next story. (laughs) There are no pirates in my story. But to start my story, I have a question. Okay. Because my the answer to your question to my question determines at which point I tell you my sources. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. I I feel like I'm playing Russian roulette. I really don't want to make the reveal part of the sources i i need to I tell mean, half the story you know okay 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 um how do have you ever heard of a man called joshua abraham norton no excellent that i'm not telling you that my sources how yet. about this i'm going to just take my headphones off <laughs> and then you can tell the sources and then i can be completely impressed and surprised all right wave maniacally when you're done okay all right for those of you playing at home there are quite a lot of sources however the two that i am choosing to use are the san francisco museum.org site and the emperor norton trust.org emperor life i waved frantically she saw it you know you actually have to be looking at the screen to see me wave frantically (laughs) I mean, look, I was busy. <laughs> I was doing things, okay? I mean, I could have said, hey, you tell your sources, I'm going to go get me a glass of wine. Oh, that would have worked. That that would have worked. That would have worked. Okay. You're gonna wa- anyway. Am I going to want a my, glass of wine? Uh, after my story, like, the, gra- the glass of wine might um, be entertaining. Like, my story is not terrible. There's nothing sad in my story. Um, you know, but you it typically don't it. bring the sad. I typically it's me who really wrecks your day. You know, we do what we can, right? <laughs> okay, so Joshua Abraham Norton was born to Jewish parents John and Sarah Norton in what is now London. Most likely, his birthday was February fourth of eighteen eighteen. Oh, these are so similar you, timelines. Okay, so I'm I know, right? A little bit earlier than you, but yeah. So I'm giving you just um, I'm just, this portion of this of my story is just like the the broad outline of his early life. Uh, when he was two, he moved in February. Uh, in so, excuse me, when he was two in 1820, his family, which included at this point his parents, his older brother Louis, 
and one younger brother called Philip, who was born on the voyage from London to South Africa. Oh. Where his father would establish a successful ship's chandrily. Do you know what a chandrily is? Because I didn't. I had to no. Google it. I know what a shandy so, is. Yeah. Uh, I, shand, chandlery. I had to read it like 15 times. Anyway, um, it's a retail dealer who specializes in providing equipment and supplies specifically for ships. Which I was like, well, then wouldn't that be like a ship shop? But whatever. <laughs> Look, I mean, you say ship shop, we call you an uneducated buffoon. But <laughs> but here we are, right? So by the time they make it to South Africa, like I said, he dad has started a successful business his parents will add an additional nine more siblings to the family. Like that through is the standard 11... means or just picking couple up at the store? <laughs> I think it's the standard means. Okay. There wasn't really anything specific to tell me otherwise, but I will say that my source, the main source that I use for this story is very, um, this is all they research. So if they don't have me anything saying they were just like picking children up off the side of the street, I'm going to have to assume they were in fact bringing children into the family the old-fashioned way. Or the legal way. What have this you. It just got weird. Because <laughs> it wasn't weird before, but anyway. Um, so he's got nine more siblings. They are living in South Africa, Um by 1840, though, unfortunately, Pop's business is starting to dwindle, and so is his fortune. By 1848, his mom, his dad, and the two brothers that were closest to him in age that I mentioned earlier, um, Louis and Philip, have all died. Oh. However. Introduce characters and end them like we're in Game of Thrones. I know, so fast. I didn't even, I didn't even say lines for him. I just showed them to you, and then I lopped them. Um... Joshua himself, though, had left home by 1845. There is um, some question as to what was really left by the time his dad had died and what happened to his younger sibling since since Joshua wasn't there to look after them. Um, but we know that by February of 1846, Joshua boards the Boston ship Sunbeam in Liverpool, which sails for Boston on February 10th and arrives in Boston on March 12th. We know Joshua was on the ship when it landed in Boston. And then on February 5th, excuse me, November 5th of 1849, he departs. So he arrives in Boston finally, when? So, and then yes. Leaves? Okay, so he arrives in Boston in 1846. Sometime between 1846 and 1849, he finally departs the boat and sets foot in San Francisco. Okay. So, at this point, there's about three years that we are unclear about what he was doing. Learning magic. Um, <laughs> it's possible. We do know, though, that he arrives in San Francisco via the Cape of Good Hope in Rio de Janeiro. So, it's possible that um, from Boston, he went to South America and, and worked and kind of um, anteed up his, his little nest egg of savings. Um, and I know that you're 
you're probably freaking out because I just jumped like three years, right? I have no known history for those three years, but we don't know. We just assume that he's working his way towards San Francisco. We do not know the reason he chooses San Francisco because, mind you know, at this time, it's 1849. What's happening in San Francisco? I don't know. Has gold, gold been rush? struck? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, we don't really know if that was his reason for why he chose San Francisco, but long story short, November 1849, he arrives. Um, by this point, he has also, like I said, he's created a small fortune for himself. It's possible that some of that fortune could have been his inheritance from his father, but we're unclear on that because A... There's belief that he had a strained relationship with Pop to begin with. And B, if the finances and things were already dwindling by 1848, and 18, between 1845 and 1848, then there probably wasn't much of an inheritance left that didn't get used to care for the rest of the siblings. Right. Um, however, regardless of how he gets the money, he makes it to San Francisco and he immediately goes into business. He advertises in the newspapers by 1850. Um, I just have to ask, what type of business do you think he had? Because I'm it was way saloon. off what I thought it was. I'm going to say saloon because you did use the phrase ante up his savings. He did not. And I'm going to tell you what I heard, what I learned was not what I expected. He actually starts a real estate and importing firm. Nope. <laughs> I would right? not have clicked that in the in the multiple choice. If neither would I. I was like, I'm sorry, what? This I would have expected saloon, like you said, or merchant, or um, I mean, like merchant, like a like a mercantile type store, you know? Right. Excuse me, I did not picture real estate and import goods, but. It is understood that he does some great things with his money. Like, he more than doubles it in the first three years. Would you care to know what the inflation is? Uh, of course. That is what of I'm course. here for. Okay. So, um, it's believed that when he arrived in San Francisco, he had right around forty to $45,000, which today would have been between $1.5 and $1.6 million. Ha-cha-cha. Um, and... By the end of those three years, it is possible it was as high as 9.9 .9 to 10 million. Okay, but imagine you're not walking around with a debit card that you can cancel. You've got like banded cash. Yeah. How coin bag. paranoid <laughs> are you? Yeah, seriously. Like, yeah, it's going straight to the bank. Like, I'm carrying like my five gold coins and that's it. That's like when I had to sleep on the floor of the Las Vegas airport. I had my stuff jammed underneath the seat. I was laying in front of it. But I wouldn't it was, have slept, I don't think. I didn't really. It was the most chaotic night because the denizens that you can imagine creeping through that airport <laughs> are exactly who you imagine. Because it's Las Vegas? Yeah, I would expect yeah. that. And again, nothing but denizens will be used to describe them. And one business class passenger who was just trying to fly home. <laughs> yeah. Um, but these are things. Anyhow, carry on. <laughs> um, so he is established. He's working. He's he's sitting pretty, right? He's got all the right friends. He's staying at all the finest hotels. He's getting into all the glitzy parties. Um, but then much to his chagrin, the year 1852 happens. 
Um, Late in the year and very far away in China, there is a famine. And one might ask, what does a gentleman in California have to do with the price of rice in China? As my husband would word it. Um, Well, the famine creates a shortage of rice, which drives up the demand and prices skyrocket up to like 900%. Now, how much is the demand of rice in California? Well, you know, I'm going to have to assume that at this time there is quite an influx of Chinese immigrants. So my assumption is probably pretty high. Okay. I did not look up the statistics on that, but just based on that, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to assume that. What was that? It was, it was a phone. Ringtone. Okay, because I was like, is that a cat? Is it the bellowing of the trumpet? Like, are the walls of Jericho about to come down? No, oh, the Mandalorians are coming. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I thought I silenced that. Um, so he, so he sees, okay, so rice has skyrocketed and he is presented with an opportunity. And in his mind, he's thinking he's going to corner the market by buying at 12 and a half cents a pound, as opposed to what was 36 cents a pound, a shipload of Peruvian rice that is supposed to make harbor in San Francisco. The price at that time is $25,000. Is he going to Lord Timothy Dexter this stuff? Uh, I don't remember who Lord Timothy Dexter is. He was that crazy head at the start of the country who kept falling up. Like, he's the one who... He's not the one with all the statues in his head, Yeah, exactly. God, I love him. I forgot that was his name. (laughs) Um, You know, you'll just have to wait. Okay. (laughs) So, um, like I said, he, he... the price is $25,000. On December 22nd of 1852, he puts $2,000 down with a contract for the rest. Had things gone uh, the way that he planned, he stood to make a very, very big profit. Um, but as I'm soon as the next a big day... Hairy butt. Yeah. As soon as the next day, and then over the next two weeks, several more shiploads of rice arrived from Peru. And all of it is better quality than what Joshua had bought. Oh, no. And then the price of rice plummets to three cents a pound, and suddenly his good deal has turned into a very, very bad deal. Because he bought it 12. At 12 and a half cents, in fact. So he tries to avoid the contract on the grounds that he had be- he's been misled. Uh, it was tied up in litigation for nearly two years and cost him a fortune. In 1854, in the middle of all of his legal battles, Joshua is inducted into as a member of the Occidental Lodge Number 22 of Free and Accepted Masons, and that comes in hand. Like that information is important later, (laughs) but I thought it was interesting that like that all happened in the middle of being in this, you know, just trying to get his money back legal battle. Well, I mean, and that's really what happens, right? Like all of these things happen because I didn't mention the Lafitte's and their their legal battle and you know because it was just like there's a ton of stories i could have told but like life is happening as all of these things are occurring because we can't forget dinner like yeah (laughs) it's always going to happen yeah exactly that's such a good way to word it um in october of 1854 the, the california supreme court rules against joshua and this leaves him 
financially ruined. Um, so he does what anybody tries to do, and he runs for the San Francisco tax collector in May of 1855. That's, yeah, that would have been my first. <laughs> I mean, me too. Yeah, exactly what I'm thinking. I would have taken a barkeep job first, but whatever. Um, I would have drank the bar first, but. <laughs> so it's interesting to to point that while he files basically for bankruptcy in in August of 1856, the local newspapers continue to feature his ads all the way until the middle of 1857. So my assumption is maybe he prepaid. <laughs> like, but it's just interesting that like they know his business isn't happening right now, but they're going to keep running it. Um, Look, there's they're not trying to make sure he makes money off these ads. They were paid for the ad. Yeah, what do they care, right? Um, at one point, he serves on a trial of someone that's accused of stealing a bar of gold from Wells Fargo. That was just another fun point in his life. Um, and then, in August of 1858, he announces his his candidacy for U.S. Congress. When the election took place in 59, he wasn't even on the ballot. Just a real bummer for him. He's was about he a write-in candidate? Uh, you know, it just said he announced his candidacy. So based on what he does later in life, I have a belief that he probably uh, didn't exactly follow the protocol of what one does to get a sitting office. Okay. 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 So by this point, like I said, it's 1858. He is living in um, a Kearney Street boarding house, which his accommodations are decidedly subpar to what he's been used to while, while he had his fortune, right? I mean, because he came into the country with 1.5 million just burning a hole in his pocket. Right. And now he's living in a boarding house. On no longer Carney Street. Of all places, right? I mean, um, I'm assuming you have to be missing a couple of teeth to work the front desk. I, this one is spelled Carney with a K, though. So I think we are just, oh. uh, it's just an Irish street, I think. Okay. If I had to guess. My apologies. Um, I take it all back. <laughs> so here's where it, get, it got really interesting for me. And we'll call it his massive glow up. For the next little while, we don't really hear anything about him or from him until July of 1859. Joshua takes out a paid ad in the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin newspaper. It was basically... A manifesto addressed to the citizens of the United States. Wait, it's wait, pointing wait. Is out he really Ted Kaczynski it right now? Just no. <laughs> no, he's not. He basically is pointing out what he sees as the national crisis. And then he suggests the, quote, imperative for action to address this crisis at the most basic level. This is very Ted Kaczynski. But anyhow, it gets better. I promise. Um. Ten days after the September 7th, 1859 election, so we're on September 17th, he issues a proclamation again in the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin, and I'm going to read you his proclamations. Okay. Okay. At the premature request of a large majority of the citizens of the United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algeo Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself emperor, emperor. of these... <laughs> yep. 
okay. <laughs> the lead up I didn't have of this man's life. <laughs> but now like the final piece clicked. Isn't he glorious? <laughs> okay. I am I am completely here for this. You thought I was just going to tell you a gold miner story, didn't you? Oh, no. I, no, oh, I no. didn't know where this was going. <laughs> I knew it was nuts. But I didn't realize the emperor of San Francisco started out with a fortune. Yeah. Um, it goes on to say, um, so he's declared himself emperor of the U.S. And in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby in order and direct the representatives of the different states of the union to assemble in musical hall of the city on the first day of February next, and then and there make such alterations into the existing laws of the union as may uh, alimorate the evils under which the country ameliorate? is laboring. Ameli ameliorate? I can't make my lips make that word. No, you're fine. I mean, there were so many words that you didn't call me out for, so I... <laughs> ameliorate? I can't ameliorate. do it ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity he signs the letter norton one emperor of the united states and i'm just gonna tell you i'm so sad i didn't get to meet this man <laughs> i am so sad i didn't get to tell this story because this would have been a ton of fun to research it's uh it's literally a riot um his reign lasts 20 years um emperor norton over those 20 million million years continues 20 million years 20 million <laughs> is that literally what you said did you really just age us that much it did excuse me so much and i'm not drinking either over the 20 years, he continues to urge the, quote, political reforms that he felt were necessary to secure the general welfare and, as he put it, to save the nation from utter ruin. Um, some of these early ideas include things like the um, abolishment of Congress. <laughs> I mean, there are uh, times where I really wonder if we haven't outlived its usefulness. Yeah, right. Uh, which was then followed by a call when the decree went unheard for the army to forcibly clear the House of Congress. Um, he called for the dissolution of the two-party system and even for the Republic of the United States itself to be dissolved in favor of a temporary monarchy. Um, and I just think, you know, when you're down on your luck, start calling yourself the emperor. Things are going to be better, you know? I mean, if great. worst case scenario, your signature is incredible. Exactly. That's how I'm feeling it. Um, there are those that in the research, they believe that he did even call for some sort of League of Nations, but there's no real evidence that, that regards that one. So that was just kind of more of an apocryphal um, tale. Like that might be complete and utter BS, but it also could have been something he said. Um are are you at all aware of how he lived? Um, not really. I do know that, like, at some point there were, like, he created his own currency. Like, I feel like I know a bunch of random things, and I'm going to ascribe a ton of more random things that have never been said <laughs> about him because he was just <laughs> one of those colorful, larger-than-life characters. But, yeah, like, absolutely, he was. Army uniform of his own making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm um, going to describe that to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So, uh, he basically lives as a pauper prince. Um, during his time, he as the emperor, he and I'm going to refer to him as that from here on out. No. Yeah. He's um, he's none other than. Correct. Uh, during his time as the emperor, he lived at what's called the Eureka Lodgings. It's a three-story boarding house at 624 Commercial Street. At 50 cents a day uh, were his uh, cost of his accommodations. Sometimes these were paid through from the benefic- the beneficiary of the his Masonic brothers and former business associates. His room was small. It was nine by six. It basically had a cot, a couch, a night table, a wash basin, and no closet. Um, to, quote, supplement his charitable contributions of money, food, and rent, and personal effects, which, to preserve his dignity, he called them taxes, the emperor eventually took to printing and selling his own script in denominations of 50 cents to $10. The script, or currency, was promissory notes payable at 7% interest in 1880 and was routinely honored in San Francisco. Um... The okay, so the the source that I didn't tell you at the beginning that I told our listening friends is the Emperor Norton Trust, and these people. This is all they study. They have so much information, and um, they go on to say that the fact that the city humored such an eccentricity says much about Emperor Norton and much about San Francisco. But the emperor wasn't just humored; he was beloved. Um, theaters reserved some of the best seats for the emperor on opening night, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, his clothes, I think, really speak to how loved he really was. Um, he had a strong sense of imperial style and decorum. This is them speaking at the emperor's dress. He wore a regimental uniform, sometimes Union, sometimes Confederate. <laughs> Take your pick. Look, he didn't, um, he, he wanted, he understood there were good men on both sides of the war exactly and i really just said that i hate myself a lot of it <laughs> that's it you know what are you gonna do um often it was a well-worn hand-me-down donated by the u.s army base at the presidio and he carried a great gnarled walking stick for formal occasions he would embellish his basic ensemble with oversized gold uh epaulets the yeah the shoulder things a sword and a beaver hat with an ostrich plume. I oh mean, God, look, this man. <laughs> Brock has some, some style going. He truly did. Um, in his lapel, they go on to say that he would always wear a carnation, which was usually a gift of a day-old blossom that was probably too withered to sell that was probably given to him by one of the, the florists that just had a heart for him. Um. The author, Hubert Ashbury, who wrote The Barbary Coast, said, quote, When Emperor Norton's uniform and hat became tattered at San Francisco's city government, the Board of Supervisors bought him new ones. Um, more likely, though, that those new uniforms were probably provided by sympathetic officers at the Presidio or soft-hearted tailors and other such supporters is what the Emperor's Trust believes. Um Regardless of how he got the clothes, the papers made sure to point out that he had stepped out in a new uniform. Like, the papers loved this man. During his reign, he could be seen reading the newspaper every morning. Every afternoon, he would go to the library He'd to write his proclamations. Um, he loved to play chess at the Mechanics Institute, which was a library there in San Francisco. And he could be seen in the evening at lectures and debates. 
Um, he often would attend the proceedings of the state legislator in Sacramento. He worked endlessly to keep himself well-versed in the national and local issues of the day. Wow. Um, right? And he was so loved by his people, uh, the people at San Francisco, that at one point, Armand Barbier, a special police officer, which was basically like, it was, it was a local auxiliary force that's members were under the oversight of the police chief but and they were often called policemen but they were actually just private security guards that were paid by neighborhoods and businesses okay so like almost um what i don't know if this is accurate but in my mind i thought of like you know how you pay the mafia um protection money but but oversaw by the police department whatever um anyway this gentleman tried to arrest norton for vagrancies which he wasn't and then when that didn't work, he tried lunacy. So I guess he had like one enemy and that was it. And it was this guy. And the papers weren't having it. And they came to his defense with comments like, in what can only be described as the most dastardly of heirs, Joshua A. Norton was arrested today. He is being held on a ludicrous charge of lunacy. Known and loved by all true San Franciscans as Emperor Norton, this kindly monarch of Montgomery Street is less a lunatic than those who have engineered these trumped-up charges. As they will learn, His Majesty's loyal subjects are fully appraised of this outrage. Damn. <laughs> Another paper called the Daily Alta said, quote, Norton was in his day a respectable, a respectable merchant, and since he has worn the imperial purple, he has shed no blood, robbed nobody, and despoiled the country of no one, which is more than can be said of any of his fellows in that line. End quote. Mike Drop. <laughs> okay, yeah, so he had some ardent supporters. He sure did. Um, the chief of the, the like actual police chief, a man called Patrick Crawley, released our beloved emperor with an apology and the emperor pardoned Armand Barbary. <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. Um, at that point, the emperor's trust points out quote that, and therefore police officers saluted the emperor when he passed them on the streets from that point Aww. on. Uh, he I was great for, for him. Right. Uh, he was great for business and tourism. Uh, an opera called Norton the First opened in San Francisco in September of 1861. The local directory had him listed as emperor, and the 1870 census followed suit, which I think is amazing, and I would love to get my hands on that. I'm going to have to go look it up. I honestly want some framed currency. I know, me too, right? Yeah. Um the Emperor's Trust even points out that by the 1870s, he was being referenced in newspapers across the country and was regarded locally as part of the tourist trade. Shops would even sell plaster figurines of the Emperor. Um, and all that to say, I think a lot of the people's affection for him stemmed from the fact that he doesn't really appear to be lofty or like set for monetary gain. But he was, in fact, for the people. A lot of his proclamations were in regards to everyday things that matter to everyday people. Um, for example, on December 2nd of 1859, uh, Norton dismissed Governor Wise of Virginia for hanging John Brown and appointed John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky to replace him. <laughs> I just love him so much. I mean, honestly, um, there's some of those those things where you wish somebody would execute that much authority and power right um on august 13th of 
1869, he says, Norton I, de Grata, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, being desirous of allying the dissonance of party strife now existing within our realm, do hereby dissolve and abolish the Democratic and Republican parties, and also do hereby decree disenfranchisement and imprisonment for not more than 10 and no less than five years to all persons leading to any violation of this imperial decree. So, like, listen, or you go to jail. But also, it's only five to ten years, you're fine. <laughs> um, December 15th, 1869, Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, left San Francisco to seek his yearly tribute from the legislator and lobbyists. He inspected the new capital during the gala ball celebrating the building's inauguration. And this might be one of my favorites. December 16 of 1869, decree by by Norton One demanded that Sacramento clean its muddy streets and place gas lights on streets leading to the Capitol. I mean, (laughs) honestly, that's a good thought. Get it together, right? Um, Like, is this really how you're going to live? Do you see how you're living? I mean, yes. Um... So these are these are three of my favorite proclamations. Um, And this one comes from the San Francisco Museum. Well, excuse me. No, this one is actually from the Emperor Norton Trust. One of the most charming antidotes about the emperor holds to the phrase the king or queen for a day originates with him that he would regularly issue this patent of nobility to those, especially children who had done him a good deed or just seemed to be having a bad day and needed cheering up. I want to hug this man. Yeah. Bad day. You're the queen now. <laughs> um, and I thought it was important to note that in 1863, when Napoleon III invaded Mexico, that's when he added the title of Protector of Mexico to his name. <laughs> um, wow. right. In 1872, he sets out the original version for what we now know as the Bay Bridge. What? Yeah. In a proclamation in January, March, and September, so three separate proclamations, the emperor called for the survey and construction of a great bridge linking Oakland and San Francisco via Goat Island, which is today called the Yerba Buena Island. Literal hero. I love this man. Um, Sadly, though, on January 9th in 1880, while walking home, he collapsed and died. Hmm. Because I guess, you know, he can't live forever. But in a quote from the Seattle Daily Intelligencer on January 15th, the funeral cortege that followed his body to the grave was two miles long. Wow. <laughs> I'm Since we weren't there, it's hard to say that how true that is, but um, I'm going to assume that he was that loved because if he wasn't the one... Uh, if if his merchant friends from from his heyday or his masonic brothers weren't footing the bill, there were locals that were, and they just adored this man. Um, to end this, I have one more fun fact. There was a young journalist, uh, in the in the near area, who would become one of the quote emperor's most empathetic observers his name was samuel l clemens mark twain uh-huh isn't that crazy 
But for and and I could sit here and I could tell you for for days other proclamations they go on forever. Um, however, I'm going to end my story on probably the pettiest and best pro- proclamation that he had. Unfortunately, this one cannot 100% be attested to him. However, it's glorious in and of itself, so I'm going to end it with that. Okay. Whoever, after due and proper warning, shall be heard to utter the abominable word Frisco, <laughs> which has no linguist or other warrant, shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor and shall pay into the imperial treasury a penalty the sum of $25. As somebody whose grandfather used to use Frisco all the time, I, I agree. <laughs> My mom says it too, and when I read that, I about fell out my chair. I have pictures of him if you want to see them. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, is it up? Can you see it? Oh, he up. has got. There's mutton chops, and then there's the things that he sported. He basically had <laughs> a full-on ZZ Top beard, and then just shaved his chin out. <laughs> Okay, so this this was from when he still had the means and the money and was attending all the Wiglitzy events. Okay? Okay. Uh, you'll want to look again. So uh, he <laughs> has... So in the first photo, he looked about a buck sixty. Pops. Yeah, like, you know, uh, this one... Um, he has found them carbs. He is probably <laughs> probably around 240, my That's guess. That's what I was thinking, 240, 250, yeah. Um, the the fur has appeared on his chin. It's less on his sides now. So he's got the inverse beard of what he had. He's still got a killer stash. Um, but he has got the biggest shoulder pads on. Um <laughs> And he has got a saber on his belt and the best plumes in his hat. And in this photo, it's not a beaver hat. It's a top hat. <laughs> yeah, You know, and exactly. Yeah. But the headwear that he is rocking is incredible. Like, I, I cannot. Okay. You know how I loved Cassius Marcellus Clay for, for just his absurdity and like the audaciousness with which that man lived like yes. i don't keep cannons in my yard but i absolutely would if i could i love this man for a completely different reason like this guy was like well down on my luck i'm gonna become the emperor and he did okay well that's <laughs> the same logic as the dude who started the han dynasty of like well um <laughs> i could either submit myself to be murdered or i could overthrow the entire thing yes yes only he did this without without overthrowing anything he just wrote in the paper so i guess you can just write things in the paper and become the emperor it was a different time (laughs) we are not doing this enough today no like (laughs) or okay we probably are and we're not getting published which is really sad is it though i mean i'm pretty sure that there's a lot of crazy heads right in the paper Here's the thing. Okay, so I was thinking about his like decision to 
to decide to title himself the emperor and then put out all these edicts and proclamations that nobody is really honoring um, and continue to do it until the day you die 20 years later. And I thought to myself, I wonder what type of mental illness is this man working with? Like, does he have delusions of grandeur? But then when you think about the proclamations and them all mostly being like basic needs, like if he was on his daily rounds and saw that the streets weren't swept or the water, the cost of water was too high or whatever, like he was fighting for those, those things for the everyday people. Like the only outlandish thing that I saw in his proclamations was that one point he demanded to be put up at a better hotel but but other than that they were all at least the ones i saw were things your average citizen would be absolutely delighted to have so is it delusions of grandeur or was this guy just like look i'm not making any money anyway i might as well have a little fun and it totally worked and now people love him yeah i don't i don't know what his motivation would be but you do bring up yeah. a good point. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive because I'm so curious as to what because for the most part his his story is so innocent. Like, uh, this sucked. Well, I disappear for a year or so. I'm not really in the news or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, here I am, the emperor. <laughs> Way to remake yourself, man. He is the the king of that. So that that's my story story on our, the only American emperor we've ever had. <laughs> There'll never be a better one. Nope. Definitely not a better dressed one. I love him. What an incredible <laughs> character. And I'm kind of bummed that I didn't do him first. <laughs> I read something about him a long time ago and I can't remember if you sent it to me or I sent it to you or I just saw it as like an aside in another article but I was like oh my god I remember Emperor, Nor Emperor Norton I'm going to see if I can find some some more stuff about him aside from the fact that like he's the emperor yeah so like he's so much more fascinating than I thought he would be I mean how did you think somebody that just declares himself an American emperor wasn't going to be fascinating I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I thought his his parents were Bob and Linda. They lived down <laughs> the street and their teacher and civil servant. And they just raised an eclectic kid who grew up to be emperor. I mean, they kind of were, right? Like the thing, the, the big thing they did was move from London to South Africa and open a business and have 11 children. But this, was that different for the time? I don't think particularly for the time, right? Because a lot of people were going to South Africa or Australia or wherever to to kind of cut out on their own and see if they could make a better hand for themselves. So it wasn't terribly different. But the fact that, like, you took three children to do that with you instead of starting out down there unmarried, like, you know, most of these stories we hear are you you meet yeah. your wife down there you know and well, there are statues of him <laughs> what? which ties in. yeah there's like in san francisco there are statues of him i have been to san francisco many times i do not know of a single statue 
I will direct you. I will Google Google Maps it for you. Damn. I feel like I, I have been under the shadow of Emperor Norton for years and had no idea. <laughs> I'm so glad we know the story. <laughs> so you can imagine how excited I was to share this with you because it is a more local to me story and to beat you to it. <laughs> um, but but I was like, she I'm gonna say Joshua Abraham Norton and she's gonna know who he is. Oh right yeah, yeah, back, no, I so. know I got a book of him right here. You know, what are you talking about? Yeah, like uh, I I ate under his statue every day while I was in high school. Whatever, like <laughs> that that's what I imagined happening. So I was like, please don't, please don't, please don't. Please don't know who this is. <laughs> I'm begging you. <laughs> so that's my story. Okay. But I love well, it. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, give us your thoughts um, or don't. And if you're like, oh my gosh, I need to actually talk to them and tell them all of these incredible things that they do or do not know, you can email us at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. And on that note, goodbye. Bye. Thank you.